Perseverance. Perseverance. Um, here, let's get right into the Holy Spirit's sort of role in our... Perse- what are we talking about when we're talking about perseverance? We're going to make it, right? We're those that... You know, the bottom line just comes down to the atonement. It's very simple. We can settle the whole question of perseverance if we settle the question of the atonement. What does the atonement accomplish? Once we get that figured out, we're good to go. Because if the atonement actually accomplished anything, then nothing can undo what the atonement accomplished. The atonement is a definite work. It, it does something. It completes something. It's a finished work from beginning to end. So, and it, so therefore, that's where the bone of contention always is. And lo and behold, that's what separates, by and large... Arminian orthodoxy from, from a reformed orthodoxy, okay? From, from what's legitimate and true about our faith that's shared by both Arminians and, uh, and the reformed uh, uh, doctrines. That's the main bone of contention right there, as far as I'm concerned, is the limited atonement or, or effectual atonement or particular atonement or particular redemption or all these names we've come up with. Either Jesus accomplished something on the cross or Jesus only made something possible on the cross. Mm. It's very simple. It comes down to all that. Now, yes, the tomes and volumes have been written on that, but at the end of the day, that's basically what happened. Either Jesus accomplished something or He only made something possible. And so it comes down to the whole fullness of God involved in our redemption and our atonement and applied and affected and, and everything else. So, um, But still, there are a lot of scriptures to talk about sort of what that looks like in, in, in practical ways. So, Christ, the, uh, the atonement secures for us our redemption and our salvation, our reconciliation to God, uh, the removal of transgression. On and on it goes. It, it removes the enmity and the hostility that is between us and God. It makes us hopefully eventually lovers of God rather than lovers of... It does this. Because we're imprisoned. We, were, we, we, we couldn't do it. It's not possible to do it. Um, and so, you know, we, we could open up into the bigger... You know, this is just one of the main differences, and it doesn't surprise us that our Arminian brethren believe, even as great a hymn writer and great a preacher as John Wesley, that one can lose their salvation. Genuinely fall out of grace with God. No less than John Wesley taught that and held on to it tenaciously, argued vehemently for it. So, um, we, we'll work with that a little bit. Uh, I'm going to ask... Uh, Romans 8.26. If somebody would with Chrissy, Romans 8.26. And I'm just going to read um, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now, He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us, a, gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. What was that talking about? He gave us the Spirit and now He sealed us. Well, to me, that's a pretty compelling verse. Yeah. He has sealed us. And I think we have to understand, though I can get into the uh, meat and bones of this, what it means to be sealed with anything, you know. Uh, in the ancients, seals had certain... certain um, authority. Yeah, authority, thank you. You know, a, a, a king, an important person, would have the, their inscription of their ring set as a seal on something so that it gave the authority of it, gave the power of it, gave the... It, it, it means this is this is me in charge. This is this is what I say, kind of thing to it, uh, and a certain respect for it. And uh, so he sealed us. And obviously, the languages, the ancient languages, are translated for our understanding. We know what it means for something to be sealed. Okay, something that's sealed is, is sort of a, it's a. We get the sense of it being made secure. We get the sense of it being made so there's no sort of undoing that. So we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 
What do you think about when you think about that verse? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a pledge? Isn't it amazing how five or six words with so much depth we just sort of say them and sort of move on by them? Oh, that's cool. This, this, you know, this is supposed to be for our meditation and this is to, supposed to be for our, for our thoughts and our reflections, you know. What does it mean that He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge? Well, what does it mean? Okay, we know by the Spirit He means the Holy Spirit. Alright, He's given us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and from the Son. So he's, He goes forth to us. And this is also, by the way, to give us great encouragement so that our joy can be uninterrupted. But So He gave us that the Spirit as a seal. What, what is He talking about in our hearts? He's given it to us in our hearts. Is He talking about the physical organ? What's the heart? What's the heart in our, in our Christian center of being? Yeah, really, it's the center of our being. I think the ancients actually probably would have translated that kiver, uh, liver, you know, the depths of our being. You know, He's given us the spirit within the depths of our being. Um, and that's just the way they thought of the liver, I guess, because of where it was. And it was the liver that was often offered up to... I don't know, in the Old Testament, we don't ever see an animal's heart with a special place in the sacrificial system, do we? But we do see the liver and the fat portions... Right, that are reserved for God or reserved for the priests. We never see the physical organ of the heart having any special place in the Old Testament. Am I right with that, brother? You with me on that? Yeah, Jonathan, you yeah. too. Good. I got two. I got those two. If anyone else disagrees, your disagreement is with them. We'll see them after. So we have that, right? So our innermost being. Well, that seems pretty comprehensive to me. Our thoughts, our emotions, our intellect, our volition, our emotions. Everything is sort of sealed. From, certainly from God's perspective, even if we don't fully realize it as we can, um, as a pledge, as a pledge. I don't know, what does the King James read in that? What does any other translation read instead of a pledge? Guarantee. A guarantee, that's a good one, yeah. A guarantee, it's a promise, it's part of what God does. It's a vow, yeah, it's, uh, and that's, that's good to remember, a vow, when we think in terms of uh, the church's marriage to Christ, you know, being the bride of Christ, so... Romans 8.26 <clears throat> Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Mm-hmm. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I don't even begin to get the depths of what that verse could possibly mean for us. Uh, other than I'm getting help from God Himself in, in, the, in the person of the Spirit to intercede for me, to pray with me, to pray for me, to guide me. to Because all of that, Romans 8 Oh, the whole thing is, is really an argument against falling away from God. You know, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son. Uh, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus there at the very end of Romans chapter 8. So all of Romans chapter 8 is just this sort of... Um, it's this massive imprint of certainty that can erase doubt. Um, very difficult to argue against those things, I think. Uh, and again... You could look up John Wesley. I was looking up a little bit why he thinks that a person could lose their salvation. I think part of his... And this is just a very cursory sort of um, comment on it. I haven't studied Wesley at any length. But just the stuff that I have looked at, his reliance upon Old Testament verses, I think John Wesley could very well have been, once again, as many are, confused by covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to sit down with John Wesley and have a discussion with covenants and see where he was with that because... I really think if he had a correct understanding of New Covenant theology, he would not come to those conclusions. So, 
Because there are things that are said in the Old Testament about Israel, about the possibility of them falling away, about the things that they did or didn't do that have to do specifically in an Old Covenant land political sort of context that is not transferable to the New Covenant. And uh, So, maybe. Uh, but, I mean, I can't, you know. John Wesley is a far greater theologian than I will ever be. Greater hymn writer, greater, probably... Uh, and probably a lot more humble too. So, Can I ask um, a question about this verse? Yes, of course. Um, where it says that the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Mm-hmm. Is that Him groaning that can't be uttered, or is that us that's groaning that we just don't have words? Who, who, who's, the, who's groaning? I think it's Him. Yeah. I mean, we see, it's interesting. I, I, I'd like to know, I'd like to look into the original language on that word, on that word, moaning. I'm grumbling a little bit. Um, Except that it has to do, I think, with things that we can't, as I said, things that we can't understand, but also with a depth of, um, just like when Jesus was went to see Lazarus, he groaned deep within himself. You know, it's just sort of this deep, inward, agonizing over the fact that sin was doing what it was doing to people. It was a lot more than Jesus weeping for his death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is that what this verse is talking about? I don't even know if we know. I don't know if we know when the Spirit is. Okay. I assume that he always is. Yeah. I, I assume that he always is, or there are certain times um, when he consciously, I guess, would come alongside us if that would feel like... Um, I know sometimes when we're having great difficulty and a friend comes alongside us, doesn't that give us a boost of some kind? Mm-hmm. I don't see why that can't happen with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I insist upon it. There's a certain sense I think we take God at his word and say, God, I, just like if I need a friend to come alongside me, I need, and I can know that person is there. I, I should be able to know when the Holy Spirit, so to speak, is empowering me, coming along beside me, and that's, or at times be aware and conscious of it. Why wouldn't God want that for me? Um, I almost demand it. <laughs> Reverently of God, you know what I mean? Um, real reverently and a little bit scared. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot more that could be said. Anybody else want to add to that? Gary, you want to add to that? I think it's the Spirit doing the groaning. Yep which takes over from for us in that, you know, we have anxieties, we have um, concerns about the pressures of life and just the circumstances that we're in right now. We haven't entered into the stage of liberty that will come at the second coming. So mm-hmm. in the meantime, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 need, we need intercession with God. Mm-hmm. And it's beyond even our ability sometimes to express yeah. The kind of hurt that we have and the yeah. feelings that we go through, mm-hmm. but the spirit I think takes over at that point. Yes. Yeah, and, and when that is and how often I don't, you know, it's not a science, or I should say it's not a science. It's it's just hard to grasp. Well, it More. Yep. Eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Mm-hmm. We're not walking around all, always, all the time. Like, mm-hmm. right. No, but there is that anticipation. We always think of groaning as being <coughs> a minus thing, you know, rather mm-hmm. than a plus. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 words mm-hmm. that we can't. We don't. We know we're waiting for him to return. And we and, and John says we don't know what we shall be, but we, we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen him in that. And we haven't seen ourselves in a resurrected body yet. So yeah. there's always that, that groaning, the anticipation. Well, the entire, yeah. What it will be. The entire creation is frustrated. We're constantly, in a sense, comes along and yeah. with us. we are frustrated um, 
we, we sense something deep inside that, but it's hard because we just can't just can't get it sometimes it's just it's very it's evasive to us Susan Mm-hmm. You don't even know what longing, longing for, because mm-hmm. we don't even have seen it yet. Yeah. But I also think in the verse 26, it just shows us that he knows us better than we know ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, well, good for you guys going for greater context, too, by the way. It's always the best, always the best thing to do. Anytime someone takes a verse, get the context, you know. And if we know the whole chapter 8 is about... Yeah, God knows where we're at. He, he knows that we think about things that can come against us. We can get to the point where Paul was. He was persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation shall be able, shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how the whole chapter wraps up in that. Everything is leading up to that. All of the... All of the faithfulness of God to do everything that He's done, leading up through Romans eight and uh, through Romans five, and then what goes on in six, seven, and then in eight, preparing us all for what comes in Romans twelve. Right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, submit yourselves, you know, present your bodies to God, your, your entire being to God. Uh, Job chapter nineteen, verses twenty-five and twenty-six. So, and here's the question on our assurance: Can we know for certain that God will keep us to the end? Do we risk arrogance and presumption? Uh, but our confidence must not be in our ability to endure any more than was our ability to come to saving faith. So it is not our ability that causes us to endure. Both are a gift and a work of God. And Scripture reveals that we can have this assurance of God's promise as we grow in Christ. And here's some of the sort of biblical record of that. First uh, John 5.13. Somebody, somebody else go to that? Maybe, um, I don't know, somebody. Brother. Brother Mark, yeah, First John five thirteen, and I'm going to go to Job nineteen twenty five and twenty six. <clears throat> Job, 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 Job nineteen twenty five and twenty six. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Now, I don't know what assurance was like in the Old Covenant for that without a, without a clue about Jesus. All right? We talk about shadows and we talk about all that stuff, but we have a fuller anticipate, we have a fuller understanding of what the shadows and types of Christ were, having seen the fullness of it. Sometimes when we talk of shadows and types, we talk as if Old Testament saints had the same sense of what that shadow and type was as we do. It's not possible because they don't know what the fullness of it is mm-hmm. any more than we could say, all right, I can look at a shadow and get a pretty good sense of what it is. But until I see the thing itself, I can say, oh, now I understand what the shadow is. You know what I mean? Now I see what was being fully cast. But I just don't ever want to give the impression that they had such a, an awareness and a fullness um, because none of them did. It took, it took the revelation of God through the Spirit and Paul and everyone else. Didn't they put a lot of trust in the fact that they were Jews and that there was, the nation was? I mean, in Isaiah, I think the the Isaiah 53 was understood to be the nation in, in their minds. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, throughout the Old Testament, that Israel was to be a light to the nations, plural. I mean, you know, you could read Ezekiel and read everything else and see promises that are made, not just to Israel, but also that someday Egypt would come to God. You know, and all these other types of names that uh, God assigned to people that represented indiv- that individuals that represented nations and everything. 
Um, yeah, we were always Israel was always supposed to be like the Gentiles. They weren't supposed to remain this closed-in community that thought so highly of themselves that God gave them the law and everything else, and God patrolled them to Himself and and, and get very arrogant about it, you know. And, and many of them, and of course the the believers as well. So Job was sure somehow uh, he was certain about something. He knew this wasn't the end. He knew that this wasn't it, you know. Uh, uh, Mark the first John five thirteen passage. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Yeah. I mean, all of 1 John. So much is in 1 John to help us. Uh, and, you know, why would John write these things, you know? Uh, why would he feel it necessary to write these things to his people uh, that he had shepherded and that he was shepherding still through his letters? Um, what else do we see in 1 John? What's the whole... What, what's going on in 1 John? Can anybody dare to sum up sort of that letter for us? Fellowship. Yeah, fellowship, right? Fellowship with the Holy, with God, and with one another. Uh, assurance of being saved. Assurance of being saved, walking in the light. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Gary said one time, I remember the word or the phrase, "You know." Mm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Eighteen times in the first John. What know is? We know. Yeah. We know. Yeah. Interesting that John is the one that records records Jesus' prayer that says, "This is eternal life that they know you." Mm. And it's quite possible that Jesus, uh, that John was also dealing. Remember, John was the last of the gospel writers. Quite possibly, even as late as 90 A.D. As some would argue, others argue the second century, which they'd be wrong about that. But they, uh, it's very possible that very early forms, seed forms, not not yet recognized proper forms of Gnosticism, were taking place yet. Uh, I think it was it was a developing thought system that was coming out of uh, you know Hellenistic Greek philo- philosophy that had to do with secret knowledge and things that we can know and that we can continue to aspire to higher and higher forms of knowledge and that the form of the body is sinful but uh, the spirit is good and they, so they had it, Gnosticism became this really complex system but it may have been around in very early sort of seed form in various ways that eventually gave sort of full um, bloom to Gnosticism and all its ugliness. Uh, and if you're familiar with uh, Elaine Padgels and some of the other um, liberal theologians over the years, Marcus Borg, the Jesus Seminar, all these people, these people all were infected in some ways with forms of Gnosticism as well. The Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel, so there's some time we'll go over Gnosticism if it's of any interest at all. Um, so here's some. So from the scriptures we've looked at, from the truth about uh, the, the perseverance of the saints, the fact that we're going to sort of make it, we'll interact a little bit with some of the questions that come up and might come up in our minds. And again, referring back to the series of discipleship books um, that I helped put together years ago. And so just a couple of hypothetical questions and answers. I know someone who was active in the church and professed to be a Christian for many years. However, they left the church and seem to have no interest any longer in spiritual things. Are they still saved? How would you respond to that? Somebody comes up to you and says that to you. Maybe we all know people like this. Are they still saved? How do you respond to that? Yes, Jonathan. I would say maybe they were never saved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said maybe. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say the same. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's the sense that we ask. Is right. Many of us know people that have been through this and we wonder how or why you know they could possibly have strayed to the extent that they did. Uh, but again, to Jonathan and, and, and Mark's 
the question as to whether a person is still saved is best understood in the context again of whether the person was ever truly redeemed or not. I like the way Sproul put it. He said, if you have it, you never lose it. Yeah. But if you lose it, you never had it. Yeah. He said a Christian can fall seriously and radically, mm-hmm. but never fully or right. finally. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Um, we know that, that saving faith, true saving faith, produces fruit consistent with God's word. Though this fruit varies in quantity and substance over time in God's people. But true faith does endure to the end. Remember Peter, right? Uh, take a look at Matthew. Here's a verse that... Um, this is a verse that ought to cause us to stop and think sometimes. We've all heard it a gazillion times. But, and, uh, but something about the verse struck me recently. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yes, Ken. Matthew 7, sorry, 21 to 23. Yeah. So how, how, how would you... Uh, let me offer this. As I was looking through and thinking about this verse, the thing that really jumped out at me was lawlessness. Mm. What is love is defined by Scripture. What is love? Love is the blank of the law. Thank you. Yeah, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so I think that... And I wonder if maybe Paul didn't get a little bit of his first 13 theology of love from, from, this, from Jesus. Because <laughs> if there's lawlessness, then there's a total lack of love. So, you know, they, then these people can say we prophesied in your name. They can say we did this. And Jesus could say, you don't even know what love is. And certainly John is all about love, right? So I think the lawlessness... Uh, I suppose if you want to strictly contextualize it to Old Testament Israel in a Mosaic context, and to a certain extent Jesus was doing that, let's not forget that Jesus was uh, still Old Testament. Okay, <laughs> Really, until the, until, the, until the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, or you know, arguably you know, in, the, in the latest parts of the Gospels of maybe you know, Luke and John, where we get a sense of Jesus you know, breathing out the Spirit and where Luke intersects with Acts with Jesus... Um, the sense of what Jesus does a lot of is dealing with Israel within their Mosaic understanding of the Mosaic law and bringing, pointing to its fulfillment and what it all means. Uh, but I think that lawlessness certainly includes just a total lack of love for God and for fellow human beings. And I think that that, that that sort of helps me a lot with that verse. I don't think that's taken the verse too far. I don't think it's unintended. I don't think it's... Yes, Denise. If you, if you get a chance to listen to Megan Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And okay. So I think that that's how that can possibly be so. I just don't think that anyone can do anything. Uh, you know, God would never sort of leave us sort of clueless as to, because that verse, if you took it the way that many might, would constantly, constantly leave you thinking with, "Gee, am I?" And it's good to question your own motives. But I can see that petty being a, co- a constant source of salvific anxiety to anybody if that passage is not rightly understood. 
Well, the leading of the church is, you could say, um, by uh, a person who previously was a professor and, and then mm. says they were not, or say they're still Christians but don't want to go to church. I mean, I've been friends in the past that haven't gone to church ever since the church split. It was just, you know, I, I still marvel over that and question myself. But it, it comes down more to what is their life afterwards. And, uh, yeah, a, a, a Christian. I agree. Um, you have to look for the fruits of the spirit. Yep. And if there's more fruits of the flesh, then you're now adding more to that leading of the church. And now there's more substance to say that there's this carnality within an individual person. They're a lover of the world rather than a lover of Christ. Mm. You know that becomes a little more self-evident over time. And it, and it is something to be taken seriously. You know, we take a look at John, First John two nineteen, um, where he says uh, they went out from us, right? Because they were never part of us. And, and the reason why they went out is so that we could know that they weren't. But I don't know that we can take that, and I don't know that that context applies to every context we know where somebody supposedly leaves the church. I can't say, boy, somebody now, unless they said, like the other thing. Again, keeping the rest of First John in mind where he clearly says that they say that Christ is not come in the flesh and all that other stuff. So my guess is, in context, when they said they walked away, it was very obvious what they walked away from. They came to reject the idea that Christ had come in the flesh, that Christ was risen from the dead, that Christ had atoned, that we could know that we have eternal life, all those things. And so my guess would be, good morning, my guess would be that that specific context would apply if we knew someone that said to us, look, I, I no longer accept this, and I never really was comfortable with the whole idea of, you know, Jesus dying for my sins, whatever, and, and that, you know, I think it's all foolishness. I don't believe in God, blah, blah, blah. That's pretty extreme, you know what I mean? And I know people that have done that. I know the people that talk that way. At the same time, though, there's so much about culture and how we express ourselves. We don't have the slightest inclination in some ways as to how people interacted with one another in those times. What it meant to use certain... We even body language can vary from culture to culture. So I, I'm always careful to take a verse like that and apply it to any situation where I can say, hey, you know, I know a bunch of people that since the church split, they don't go to church anymore. Well, then they're outside of God's will. That's a fact. But I can't say that they're outside of Christ. I don't know what goes on with them. I don't know why. I don't know if anyone ever sat down with them and tried to lovingly try to, to work with them and plead with them and, and, and bring them the love of Christ. Instead of just saying, gee, you know, that guy hadn't been to church in five years. Clearly, he was never saved. Well, you know, want to call down fire from heaven to consume him while you're at it? You know? It's like, lighten up, dude. Um, so then the question becomes, what responsibility is ours, right? And I think that Scripture just admonishes, admonishes us to be sure of our calling. I don't think God... God never intends for us to have salvation anxiety. He doesn't want us living our whole lives living under the fear, am I saved or am I not saved? That's madness. That's insanity. That's not joy in the Lord. Everything that we're supposed to have is joy in the Lord. Now, there may be times when we go through things and we have to question something about ourselves and it might really affect us deeply and, and, and we can sort of retreat back to the Gospel and take our comfort there. And I think God uses those things, but we're not meant to live in a constant sense of, you know, some people can live like that feeling you get when you're falling backwards in a chair just that second before you finally go over. We're supposed to feel that way about our salvation all the time. It's not healthy. Um, but again, God has provided things for us so that we can continue to enjoy and delight 
And that's what love is. I mean, loving God is delighting in Him and enjoying Him and His people, you know. Uh, I, and, and there are certain things that will lead to lack of assurance, which we'll talk about a little bit more, because there are plenty of Christians that lack assurance, even though they're fully saved. They lack assurance on a regular basis. And I think that's entirely possible to lack assurance. It's not healthy, but it's entirely possible for a Christian to be unsure, and there are reasons for it. Although I'm certainly open to, to sort of arguments against that, but... Um, I take a look at a few things. Scripture tells us, in, again, Romans 8.29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. How does this apply to enduring to the end? So we're going to endure to the end, the Scripture tells us in one place. In another place, it says that we're predestined. So the Scripture admonishes us to, be, to endure to the end. It says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Right? So now we have this verse that says, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. How does that fit into the whole enduring scenario. Guys, thought you were just going to come and hear stuff this morning instead of think, huh? <coughs> yes, Mark. And it does say you're predestined to be conformed. Yeah. Who predestined, who predestined you? Yeah. Do they have the power to do what they said they're going to do? Yeah, amen. And is, is it happening? I mean, we don't know yet. Yeah. Completely, but... Yeah, he who predestines is he who conforms. <laughs> Right, so maybe it's some of Paul's old, I I don't know, Isaianic potter and clay sort of uh, theology coming through. Again, Paul was very rich in Old Testament theology. Never get the idea that Paul Hellenized himself or or adapted himself to the Greek culture that he was in. Paul was strictly and only concerned with Old Testament Hebrew theology, spreading that among the Gentiles. He didn't become a Greek in that sense. Um. How about, you know, and I just sort of alluded to this a minute ago, how does this doctrine of perseverance affect the abundant life that John 10.10 10 talks about? Jesus said, I come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Right? So, what is, what's perseverance got to do with the abundant life? I think the abundant life is more of a way of thinking or a mindset mm-hmm. than actual physical things around you. Yeah, definitely. You yeah. can be in any situation and be yeah. the happiest person in the world That's right. and have yeah. everything in the world at your foot, at your feet mm-hmm. and be the most miserable person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I would say, how, how abundant can your life be if you're constantly worried about whether or not you can lose salvation or that God's not going to hold on to you? I'm not sure God can keep me till the end. Uh, because I believe that's what the... That's what that's what the Arminian has to grapple with. That's what people that believe you can lose your salvation have to grapple with. How can I possibly know? Doesn't I can't. It, doesn't it come down, well, in that case, to the, your view of God? Definitely. I, I, Everything begins God with a... God isn't big enough to hold on to you. Yeah. you got to get a bigger God. Yeah. I mean, I remember quoting uh, Hank Hennegraaff back when I was doing the Shack study, and he said it before. You know, every... Every bad theology, everything, everything is, every wrong theology begins with the wrong concept of God, obviously. I mean, stating what's obvious, but sometimes you need to do that. You have a wrong concept of God, everything else is going to get wrong. That's why we have, you know, that's why we have the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. That tells us everything we need to know about God's ability to keep us saved to the end. <laughs> everything. I would say Genesis 1 to 3 gives us everything we need to know. Genesis 1 gives me everything. Genesis 1-1 gives me everything. <laughs> uh, discuss. So, so let's think about... 
What's the difference between God's faithfulness and man's faithfulness? How is God faithful and how are we faithful? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, the difference is sort of laughable at times, huh? Um, how is God faithful to us? What does it mean that God is faithful? We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Yes, Mark. Uh, it seems to me that God is faithful to us because He knows everything about us our mm -hmm. entire lives. Mm -hmm. He knows what, what, how we're going to screw up. Mm -hmm. And yet He has still committed Himself to, be, to, to, to us. I love the way you said that. He committed Himself. Absolutely. The Hebrews talks about His promises. He commits Himself. God commits Himself. It's a great way to put it. Gene, what's the big difference between your faithfulness and God's faithfulness? I called you out. <laughs> his is true. Mm. Yeah, his is true. <laughs> his is true. Thanks. I think sometimes, too, we want to be faithful because we want to feel like we're doing right. Yeah. It's almost can be self-serving. Yes, it can. Yeah, that's you a know? great point, too. Yeah. Yeah, faithfulness can become... Pride? Yeah, I don't arrogance, feel as guilty if I know that I'm doing X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how is that, you know, exactly? Certainly not. So you can look at your faithfulness as your way of keeping yourself in God's good favor. Which, you know, again, it's hard because we know the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. But we have to remember also that that, I think, is... Um, I think that can be less helpful than more helpful the well done good and faithful servant at times because it's it's in the setting of a parable and um, I don't know I'm, I'm not I mean I I want to say that to Jesus when I see him I want to say to him well done good and faithful servant look at who you got here I mean let's play the tapes Jesus let's watch this let's play the DVD I need to be able to say to Jesus well done good and faithful servant I don't need to hear it I really don't. You're kind of making my point, though. Yeah. Because I wanted to say, I think it's more like he's being faithful to himself. Mm. This is now. Yes. It means everything. Mm. If he says anything mm. and it does not come to pass, mm -hmm. what right. does it do to his name? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Moses was ultimately concerned with that. God, look, if your people perish in the desert here, no, don't kill them. The, the people are going to mock you. People are going to make fun of you, God. They're going to say, you led your people out into the desert to kill them. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to deprive you of the glory Do your name. Moses was ultimately concerned with the glory of God's name. You know? Scripture also says that we're preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. It was Paul's desire that the, that the believers be preserved blameless that's the coming of our Lord. What is blamelessness? How are, first of all, how are we preserved blameless? Right? So P Paul can desire something he knows God has committed himself to doing. This is where Scripture sometimes is... Um, we run into this a lot in Scripture. We're going to get into it a lot more in a minute with a verse. But this idea that you know, God expresses his desire for us to be what he intends to make us. Right? And... Um, and it brings up the bigger question about God. You know, God, how does God experience in His being the satisfaction of His people enduring to the end? You know what I mean? He, 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 he experiences it. So He knows. I mean, I'm, I'm going to sort of, um, sort of 
go beyond any specific verse, I think, and try to draw some inferences from Scripture without bringing up the bigger argument of God's passability or impassibility, which means what, Brother Gary George? Do you know what it is? Passability? When we talk about the passability of God, what are we talking about? Uh, that he can become, if he's, he can become emotional yeah. and out of control. Yeah. Or, 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 or Yes, I don't think one necessarily leads to the other. I think, the, but although you hit it, I don't think we have to worry about him being out of control. But if I understand passability and impassibility correctly, it's does God experience emotion? Does God's emotions, do his emotions, are they sort of, you know, does he experience genuine emotion? Good God, I hope so. Jesus did. Yeah, Jesus surely did. And he's the exact representation yes. of God. But, but, but the people that are concerned about whether or not God experiences emotion to that kind of thing, that would sort of be their concern. Well, what do you mean? God can be out of control with his anger? You know, we, 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 we can, yeah, right, and he, and he certainly can't. Be unstable and change his mind and yeah. destroy us. Yeah. But again, in Zephaniah, God says, I will sing over you. I will rejoice over you. And I think that God, uh, even if we take that saying in the parable, well done and good and faithful servant, I think that maybe at the least can be an expression of God's excitement. Yes. God's overwhelming joy. God, I believe, experiences that. It, there's a difference between knowing something and knowing it experientially. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was walking my dog. I was thinking, you know, Jesus never got to walk a dog, you know, or like have a pet dog. I wonder if he knows what that's like. And then I got to thinking, what if he's so united to me that he can experience what I'm experiencing emotionally? And, and, and I thought, yeah, he probably does know what it's like to walk a dog. I was just reading a sermon from 1890 the other day, and... I had no idea. I mean, you look great for your age. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I already, I already thought you looked great, but, but my God. Sermon, thank goodness. Wow. But it was, it, it was amazing. I I haven't heard that sermon in this way before. And he was he was trying to couch this, what I'm going to say, for us to, to meditate on. Mm. He said, Christ, God made a body for Christ to live in. Mm-hmm. He experienced... So he was incarnated, mm-hmm. and he said it had to do with come, come, come. The three comes in Revelation twenty-two, uh, mm. and the God mm-hmm. says come. And um, he says, he says the Holy. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he said, in a sense, he's still incarnated in us. Mm-hmm. What I feel. He knows what I'm feeling because mm-hmm. he lives within me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He lives within me. And he's not trying to make me say that I'm God. Right, he's sure, not no, God, not at all. But he lives within me. He's involved in every part of my being. Mm-hmm. When I rejoice when I read the Word, I've often said to people, when you're reading, the Holy Spirit wrote, why do we keep reading it? Because we want to learn what the Holy Spirit wrote here. Mm-hmm. We want to know, if, I want to know every attitude that the Holy Spirit was writing about and mm-hmm. what he was trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. And that was God. That was yes. God's feelings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when I read the Word, and I am, I was reading this sermon, and then I was reading the Word along with it, mm-hmm. what it was quoting out of the Scriptures, my heart was so rejoicing. Mm-hmm. God is within me. Yeah. Causing that, you know, yeah. rejoicing with me because huh? He's rejoicing over His own mind. Yeah, I think you're experiencing His joy at the same time. Absolutely. And Jesus says, welcome, <laughs> you know, 
Walk him into the, the presence. He says, you know, enter the joy of your Lord. Oh, yes. Experience my joy. Yes. You know what I mean? Enjoy yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of that going on that, you know, we can think about more and not worry about, you know, making God something he's not. Yeah, I, you know, I suppose there's limits on everything, but we'll let, we'll let each other know when we get to the limit. You know? That's what the church is there for. That's what the church is there for. Um, there's a couple other verses I just want us to have in mind, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? The idea that Jesus intercedes for us. We read this in John. We read this in Hebrews. We read the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We, we read in Luke even that Jesus prays for us, right? Because that's, I think it was Luke where... Um, well, it was at least Luke. It might have been the other synoptic Gospels too where Jesus told Peter, I've prayed for you. You know, the devil wants to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. So we know he's praying for us. Again, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, but then the question comes, so, so knowing this, that we will persevere, a true believer will persevere to the end, um, I, I think that we can do, we can struggle with assurance. Let me read you something from J.C. Ryle. And this is one of the points that he was making in his book, Holiness. He says, A believer may never arrive at this assured hope and yet be saved. And he says, I pass on to the second thing I spoke of. I said a believer may never arrive at this assured hope which Paul expresses and yet be saved. I grant this most freely. I do not dispute it for a moment. I would not desire to make one contrite heart that, sought, that God has not made sad. I, I'm sorry. I would not desire to make one contrite heart sad that God has not made sad or to discourage one fainting child of God or to leave the impression that men have no part or lot in Christ except they feel assurance. A person may have saving faith in Christ and yet never enjoy an assured hope, such as the Apostle enjoyed. To believe and have a glimmering hope of assurance is one thing. To have joy and peace in our believing and abound in hope is quite another. All God's children have faith. Not all have assurance. I think this ought never to be forgotten. That's a very powerful statement from, uh, from a pretty intense guy. And if you read the rest of that book, Holiness, you find yourself hard-pressed to disagree with him. Um that a person can be saved and yet lack assurance. So let me ask you, how do we develop this muscle of assurance? Why do people lack assurance, do you suppose? Why do people lack assurance, do you suppose? Not reading. Yeah. yeah not not, yeah. The word, not finding out who he is. Yeah. And, and some of these things, by the way, there is, there, in a way there is an intersection of those that aren't true believers and those that, you know, those who lack assurance might lack assurance for the same reasons that believers are unbelievers to some extent. Yeah, they're not, they're not in the Word enough. They're not, and we know that God's doing something in His Word. I mean, there's more to us than the Bible, and there's more to God, so to speak, than just, and I don't mean just the Bible, but you know, we certainly have God's expressed will about Himself and everything. So if you're not in the Word, if you're not, and God, the Spirit mediates God to us in the Word so that through His Word, just like you were saying, you said it well a minute ago. You said, oh, so all of a sudden you just get all wrapped up in excitement. Well, that's the Holy Spirit sort of ministering, ministering His presence through God's Word in a way He can't do any... He won't do any other way. He won't do it any other way. He won't do it strictly through nature. He won't. He'll give you something good through nature, but He will not give you the spirit of sonship, a daughtership, like He will through the Word. Am I right, brother? Yeah, the other thing I was going to say is... Uh Evil communications corrupt good man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who you choose to associate with, 
if it's, especially if it's unconverted people, yeah. they're going to have a tendency to bring you down and take you down the broad and crowded road. Yeah. And you're going to feel like you're missing out on on the uh, joys of Egypt. Yes. And you, and you forfeit the blessings of heaven for mm. the temporary pleasures of this present evil world. It can happen. So bad company, right? Well, what's 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 so something else to develop our insurance. What's the opposite of bad company? Yeah, where do we find good company? Yeah, fellowship. Being with other believers. Recently at a Hebrews conference, um, this brother was preaching on just the one, one verse in, Har- in, in uh, Hebrews about Rahab the harlot as an example of faith. And he was using that to build a case for what, how do we recognize true faith. And one of them was identification with God's people. How Rahab identified herself with God's people. How Ruth also did this as well. Identified mm. herself with God's people. Mm. Well, how can you say I identify with God's people? What, what does it mean to say that we identify with God's people? Part of our identity is part of, is the group of God with the church. Mm. To be out. So, so people we know that left because of church splits and whatnot, and that are outside of church, or that don't have regular, that maybe never attended church, but they're one of these sort of. Uh, I'm a Christian on my own. I read the scripture all the time. And I say to them, based on the authority of God's word, you are outside of the will of Christ. Some I would say that to more sort of aggressively, others more passionately and with with a gentle spirit. But to those that would want to argue it, I would say you are outside of Christ's intention and will for you. Because it's impossible to abide in Christ without abiding in the church. It's impossible. The church is the body of Christ. If we don't understand that, if we don't grasp that, there's no way a person outside of church is, is, is going to enjoy a measure of assurance. And if they do, God help them, it's going to be a false sense of assurance, even if they're truly saved. How terrible to live with a false sense of assurance that leaves you not participating in the wonderful things of the kingdom. Mm. I mean, man, we're messing around with fire here. Mm. This is what it's good to remember. Our God is a consuming fire. Not that he's going to consume them and wipe them out, but don't forget the attributes of our God. Mm. You know, he's not a toy. Or as, what's his name said? um, At the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Mr. Tumnus, when he said, after all, he's he's not a tame lion. Mm. Right? In the book, he can read it, but also in the movie, you see Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ, walking down the beach after all has been said and done, and the kingship has been established, and... Peter and his brothers and sisters and everything, right? And he's talking to, to the little one, Lucy, about, you know, will he come back, this and that. And Mr. Tumnus says, whatever it was that preceded that, but he said, but after all, he said, you know, he, he's not a tame lion. Let's still remember here. See, we are dealing with the lion from the tribe of Judah, you know. He's got magnificence. But, but that's good. Uh, I think that we can... I want to encourage people to write down your hopes and doubts in the forms of a prayer to the Lord and keep it with other personal reflections, you know. Write it out and pray to God if you've got doubts about your assurance. Pray it to Him. Talk to Him about it. Um, And then I want to touch on a couple of passages I think that are very important. The biggest challenges... Again, these came up at the Hebrews conference and the timing of it is interesting. Um, And that is... If you know these passages that I'm going to already... First one is Hebrews ten twenty six to thirty one. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment in the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of one or two, uh, two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then over a couple of blocks down in Hebrews 6, 4-8. For in this case, for in the case of those who once have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God, but it yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Okay, pretty powerful verses. Um, and what about those? Well, it shouldn't surprise us to know that you know, two of the theologians that spoke at the conference who had disagreed on what this meant. They, didn't, they both agreed that one can't lose salvation. You can't fall out of that altogether. But they believe that for different reasons. The one, and this is, they basically represent the two parties. The one uh, believes that these uh, things that are said, because they are said to people that may or not be believers in the first place, that this really can't happen to true believers. Um, but it's a warning given to those that are sort of just have a slight profession of faith or have been around the church, okay, have been uh, experienced some of the, you know, like the ones Jesus said, they, 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 they spring up fast, you know what I mean? It seems like they're, 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 they're legitimate members of the body, but turns out in the end, after all, they weren't. Um, excuse me, there's that group, and then there's the group Tom Schreiner represents, and, you know, Tom Schreiner is one of those guys that's like, you know, you don't, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, right? You don't pull a mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Tom Schreiner. But he said that, no, these are believers that he's talking to. And not that they can lose salvation, but that the warning is itself one of the means that God uses to keep them enduring, although they're going to endure anyway, even though they may not sort of fully know it in the way that God knows it. So what he's saying is that this becomes a way of... So God says, I'm going to cause you to endure to the end. And one of the ways he does that is by warnings about something that could happen, but that that's not going to happen to you. And now, the other unique thing about Hebrews is it's completely different than any other book. And as much as you have, and it's difficult for us to relate to this, is that you've got people that are reconsidering going back to a system of Old Testament sacrifices and thereby calling Jesus unclean, saying that his sacrifice is insufficient. So there's a whole context of Hebrews to be considered too. But... As I mentioned, Schreiner, who said this and was dealing with this and interacting with this, um, again, basically said the warnings are designed to and succeed in keeping genuine Christians from falling away. It's an actual warning designed to address, to address the terrible prospect that we would, would be without Christ. For that is genuinely horrifying to us. And so, he presents something to the believer that would be terrifying for them to even consider and would never want to happen in the first place and that sort of just sort of strengthens their own sense of resolve. 
And then the re- rejoinder to that was, look, if it's not a real warning, if the possibility isn't there, how could the falling away be a possibility as well? So you run into this real philosophical conundrum over whether this could actually happen or not. So he makes the example, Tom Schreiner does, of Acts 27, 21, where Paul is on the ship with the guys. And they say, men, if you jump overboard, you die. If you stay on the boat, we're going to live. I know, I've talked, my God has told me that if we stay on this, we're going to, we're going to make it. Nobody, no life is going to perish. The ship's going to be a mess. We're going to lose all the goods and all that stuff. But... If you get off the ship, you're dead. Okay? Now, the question is... uh, And and so Tom Schreiner is saying that this is that kind of a thing. In God's uh, decree, none of those men was going to get off the ship anyway. God had already decreed that none of them, that they would all survive. It was never a question in God's mind of whether all those men were going to make it to shore. In his mind, they all were. And yet, Paul used the warning to sort of keep them there. So, it's one of those things sort of when from man's perspective there's almost a danger of drowning in that case. But from God's perspective that was never the case. I don't know, man. It's hard. It's hard to... uh, We know that the possibility of losing one's salvation is crystal clear in Scripture. I don't know why or how John Wesley missed it. Unless, again, as I say, he didn't quite understand the New Covenant this fully. That's a, that's a tough thing to say about John Wesley. I'm going to meet him in the afterlife. He's going to say, hey man, who do you think you are? He's going to challenge me to an arm wrestling match. One explanation could be that because he believed in man's free will, mm-hmm. if, if your will is such that you can will yourself to be saved, then you can will yourself to be unsaved. Yeah. So your will is never bound. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's at your own volition. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you want to be stay in the, in the faith, mm-hmm. you want to stay faithful, mm-hmm. that's up to you. Mm-hmm. If you choose to go away from the Lord, mm-hmm. you choose to do yeah. that, and yeah. that finalizes your lostness. Yeah. yeah. Unless, of course, yeah, see, but even at that point, Wesley has to deal with the fact that, okay, then, you just, then you've decided at that point that your will is no longer free. You're no longer free to will to be back in God's grace again. That's what Wesley was confused and wrong. If he would be consistent with theology, he would ask himself that same question. If it was a matter of free will, he should be able to ask himself, okay, I can will myself to be in God's will, or I can will myself to be out of God's will. But then on the same, at the same time, he wants to say, I can will myself to permanently be out. I can get to the point where... So in any case, his will, he's, Wesley should have realized his will was never truly as free as he liked to think it was. Another way of putting it is, uh, you can will yourself to be born again, then you can will yourself to be unborn again. Right, yeah. Then the question comes up, well, can you will yourself to be born again? And then if so, do you, maybe you can be born yeah. again and again and again and exactly. again in yeah. your lifetime, which yeah. is ridiculous. Well, it is. It, it, that's ultimately, I think, where his argument ends up. You know what I mean? So... I want us to all have assurance. I want us to all be absolutely certain. And, you know, the best way to do that is to, uh, you know, we're saved, of course, by faith. Faith is the sort of the... Well, actually, we're saved, by, we're saved through faith. <laughs> we're saved by Christ redeeming us on the cross and our faith in that. So faith is the vehicle by which we sort of, sort of do that. But our assurance can be had. We can be absolutely confident, first of all, of God's ability to save. We have to be sure of that first. We've got to be sure God is God and not me. Because God is, is not sovereign in Wesley's point of view. I'm, I'm, I, I can't see it. Um, so God is either sovereign or He's not. He's able to save to the uttermost or He's not. If, now that I've settled that question, yes, that God can do that. Then I have to ask myself, has He done it for me? 
And the only way I know that is by, you know, have, have, I, have I experienced the things that Scripture say happen to a person that is confident that God can save them? In other words, have I been someone that's repented of a life without God? Have I repented of not loving God? Have I repented of not loving my fellows? Have I repented of my evil and my sin? Have I asked genuinely for that steadfast presence of God with me to never leave me and to never forsake me? Because I just want Him that much. And I know I'm going to continue to mess up God, but I really want you so much in my life more than I want anything else. So, we can have the assurance um, and we can still be saved and, and belong to Christ even though that assurance sometimes is fleeting. But if it's fleeting, do something about it. Don't just settle for it. Man, that's crazy. That'd be like not being sure your spouse, you know, sort of loves you. You know, or anyone else for that matter. You know, how difficult that can be. Alright. So then. Jonathan, please pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that your word and we thank you that you are powerful to save us and to keep us to the end. We thank you that you've given us your word and, and supplied it to us so not only for assurance but for guidance and for to just revealing yourself to us, Lord. And we thank you that without you and all of your work and, and your power and who you are, we would have zero hope, Lord. And, and because of you, we do have hope. Because of you, we have new life. Because of you, we have an abundant life. Because of you, we have a hope that's to come. And we just thank you and we pray, Lord, that uh, this morning that your word goes forth in power, Lord, that we honor and glorify the name of your son, the work that, he, that mm. you've done for us and the work that you've done and for choosing us from the foundation of the world, Lord, and just providing mm. everything that we need. And we pray that we honor and glorify your name today. Let the word go forth in power and let it cut through us. Let that two-edged sword just cut through us and let us lead change today. Amen. Amen. I have no idea what we're doing next week, so... I am working on a book, though, a thick, thick, big old fatty book on uh, the role of women in the church, the, the controversial First Timothy passages. Eventually, I'm going to get to teaching a class on that. So, let you know about that. So, yeah. And the role of men in church, for that matter. But just what seems to be more controversial is understanding some of those tougher verses and what they actually mean and get arms around them. What can we know for sure? What can we not know? Some of the 